five four three two one zero and liftoff. Dispatches, a production of Blur Bank, is an in-depth look at those living artistic lives. Each episode will feature photographs and audio interviews with narrative pioneers who have taken creativity and publishing in their own hands. From artists to authors, photographers to philosophers, Dispatches will reveal the faces and foundations of those who lead the creative way. Hey everybody, I'm recording today from my front living room, believe it or not. It's always nice when I can do an interview here at home. And I'm with a long, long, long time friend, but there's, huh. but there's a whole lot of stuff i got to preface this with. So <laughs> I did this interview once before, probably a year and a half, two years ago in Las Vegas at, at, at this, this guy's house. And I totally screwed it up. I forget what it was. I was trying to record with the iPhone and it was just, I just butchered it. So I have portraits of him, but I never had the actual interview. So I am with Eric Lavasita. Hello. How you doing? And you and I met in nineteen. We were just talking about this. Nineteen ninety six. Ninety six. The was yeah. it was either the Republican or Democratic. It was the Republican convention. Yeah. In downtown San Diego. Yeah. Now I had I was a grizzled veteran at that point because I did Houston in ninety two, mm-hmm. and San Diego was my second, my second political convention for you. Was it first? It was the first. Yeah, but I was a uh, at that time. Um, 96 would have been, yeah, that would have been my best year of street photography in Tijuana. So, and I, and Uh I, I had been shooting in Tijuana for, at that time, four years. So, right. It's, um, so let me go back. I can't verify entirely, but I'm pretty sure I was wearing a photo vest at the convention. So I just want full full disclosure. I need people to know, but here, here's my one. The one thing that makes it okay is I met two two of my heroes at that event. I met Reza. Yeah. And I met... I didn't know he was there. Yeah. And right. I met um, Philip Jones Griffiths, right. both Magnum photographers, right. for those of you guys out there who don't know. And I swear to God, Philip, Philip Jones Griffiths was wearing a photo vest. So yeah. I think... He was. He definitely made, was. It, I, I, I had a nice talk with him. I did too. And he and I yeah. walked down the street together and he told me about Magnum. He told me about yep. photography. He said that every Magnum office was in its own sort of disarray. Right. But that the photographers in the different cities looked at being with the agency in a very different way. Some of them looked at it in a way of like, what's the agency going to do for me? And sure. others said, you know, hey, what can I do for the agency? Now, that could have been total BS, but... Anyway, these were two of my Magnum legend friends, and I met you, and you were another like a guy walking around with Tri-X. Yep. I met Eric Hansen, the other San Diego <laughs> Eric, yep. and Hansen had a Leica, and he was shooting, and yep. that was, so, you know, it was the first time, I don't remember, I remember meeting you there, but I don't remember when we connected after that, other than it was probably going to TJ. You know, we just, we just shot the shit for, uh, after we met, and then we just exchanged numbers, and we were on our merry way for that convention. And then uh, we, I, th- I think we, a couple of days later, we met up with co- for coffee or something. And uh, Hanson yeah. wanted to, uh, he, he, he was a very shy guy. Which is so funny because he, you because know. Because he, 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 you know, he, he's. Once you get to know him, he's, he's not kind of shy. brash, right. Yeah. And he was trying to figure out how he could approach Abbas, who, who's also there. That's what I meant to say. Not, <laughs> Abbas. not, not Reza. It was, yeah, Abbas. it was Abbas. I have met Reza before, but so, it was Abbas, yeah. It, in, in 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 his in his mind, he was like, "Well, he's 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 Muslim, and so maybe he doesn't drink. Maybe maybe he would like to go for tea." <laughs> so, yeah. So so he he actually never met up with him, but um, uh, we did meet up with uh, Alex Webb, and I actually had to break the ice 
with them because he was Alex Webb was his hero. Was oh like, yeah, I, I, mean, I just walked up to him and was like, "Hey, Alex." Alex How Webb is like he 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 was like he was like all of our heroes for I yeah. mean it still is so in a lot it was, of ways. It was a fun time. Um but yeah, that was uh Okay, so let's let's go back a little bit. So we meet we meet there, you're shooting, you were not on assignment for anyone. You were there because no. you lived in San Diego and you were you were photography. So Correct. you were just taking pictures on your own. So right. go back to I have no idea when you actually picked up a camera, when why you started making pictures in the first place. When I graduated high school I uh, was asked, what do you want for a uh, graduation present? And I, I gave it literally um, five seconds of thought. I was like, how about a camera? It's like, I, that's as much thought about uh, yeah. that as I, as I gave it. And so a um, month later, or a week later, we go to the camera shop, and, and um, we, I, I, I get a uh, Nikon F.A., Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember the FA. Yeah, the FA was my first camera with a 35 to 135 oh, zoom lens. Bad, bad. But, you know, yeah. look, I had the same thing. I'm, hey. not, I'm not knocking you. I'm, I'm no, in, I know. We're in I know. solidarity with bad lens choices. I know, and I, I, I used that. Uh, I think we took a family trip to New Zealand, and I was shooting that in New Zealand. And then I, uh, oh, um, I put my finger through the shutter. <laughs> Oops, <laughs> changing film. And I think that camera was out of commission. But I came back and bought another camera because I was, uh, at, at that time, um, I had to figure out what I was going to do. So I went to uh, a city. I, I didn't have the grades to go in straight right into uh, UC. Yeah, yeah. So I went to uh, City College, and uh, they had a photo program there. Oh, boy. So... Yes. That's where I met Eric Hansen. Eric Hansen. Yeah, and he uh, he was making not daily trips, but two or three times a week going down to Tijuana. Well, I was scared to death of Tijuana. Even in the '90s, it was you know. Yeah. I, I remember when I was a kid, um, my dad would take us down there, and um, it, it was a frightening place. Just it, it was it was terrifying. Okay, okay, wait a second. Before you go, this is an in- integral part of the story of what you're right. telling me. But you cannot, we cannot go any further without addressing the white <laughs> elephant in the room, which is you just said the words "my father." Ernesto. And when we're, just so the audience knows, Eric's dad uh. is your dad and my dad and everybody else's dad rolled into one. And then if you took every piece of of like macho badass man stuff and yeah. rolled it into one person, it would be Ernesto Labastida. Okay. Your dad is a badass. The first time I ever saw him, I drove into your driveway, and he had a van on blocks, and he was, like, replacing the axles. It wasn't even like, oh, I'm doing a brake job. It was like, I'm replacing the axles. And when you shook his hand, or when you shake his hand, it's like you may not get it back. It is just this, you know, the history. This is a guy who's run rivers. He's explored Mexico. He's done it on dirt bikes and four-wheel drives. And I'll tell you a story. Um, I, uh, I was just out there. I was out there. Well, I was in San Diego the past couple of days, um, and he was showing me the plans of his latest repair on the house. Now, he's 81, okay? <laughs> yeah. He was showing me the plans of, of, of this. Uh, he had to replace a cast iron pipe and replace it with a PVC pipe underneath his kitchen or whatever. Yeah. He had to crawl under the house. 
like you know prone position and get in there and he he, he spent like four or five hours on the damn thing but the only thing he had to say about it was like well it was a good workout <laughs> look like, he's he is not your typical dude when you yeah. meet him and plus um to fast forward a little bit but after i met you and you know realized that you were a black and white guy and i was a black right. and white guy you were shooting your projects on and processing and printing yourself i found out you had a dark room right and when you told me what it was and where it was, I was like, um, kind of need to see that on my own. So in, right. in essence, what you told me was I have a dark room in a cave. <laughs> and, and I thought, okay, and I had a mental picture of a cave. But when I got there and I looked at it, it was like out of Hogan's Heroes kind of cave. Mm-hmm. It, it was legitimately tunneled into the side of a mountain. It was a massive cave. And in the very back was a door, and inside that door was a dark room. And literally, right. the right half of the wall, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, was either still a cave wall, or when you opened the yeah. door that was there, it literally went into like the end of the cave. No, that was the, that, that was where we decided, as slave laborers, decided to stop working. <laughs> no, I swear to God, it was now, a cave. Now, now, okay, I grew up in La Jolla. This is not slave labor, but at the time, I, I, I you know. I like to think of it as slave labor. It wasn't. But we... Um, you and your brother. Me and my brother were paid, I don't know, it was like 10 cents a wheelbarrow oh. to dig out that. And it was, it was rock and impacted dirt and clay. It's a but cave. We, it was well, a cave. It was well, a sizable... a jackhammer. Yeah, no, the, 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 the entire, the entire um, downstairs under the house was dug out by my dad. And then... Uh, walls of um, of very good quality uh, um, cinder blocks. Yeah, that, those are the walls, and yeah. he, and he taught me how to make a proper cinder block wall. I remember making prints in there, and it was always cold. I always yeah. had a jacket on in there. Okay, so we got to the cave. We talked about your father. Just everyone know that there's a guy out there. The ultimate, <laughs> the most interesting man in the world, and the ultimate badass are one and the same, and he lives in San Diego. Oh man. Yeah. So you are you're in college. You end up meeting Eric, Eric Hansen, and yeah. you and Eric introduces you to Tijuana. Right now, we call Tijuana TJ. So when people when I say that, people are going to know what it is Tijuana. Right. So Tijuana. I had been I'd never been to TJ, but I had been to Nogales and I had been to Nuevo Laredo and Juarez and stuff. Being from Texas, so I'd been across, so I knew what to expect. Right. But you and I started going down there as well, and right. we would just screw around and go find, we would go to Zona Norte and we would shoot yeah. stuff, and you and Hanson were going down there. You guys were way more invested than me and had spent a lot more time there. Yeah. So was it at City College where you started to think about the idea of sequencing images together, that it was more than just random stuff? What, what happened? You know, um, I just, at that point of my evolution of being a shooter, it was, I, w- I went into the college library and I pulled out books by Cartier-Bresson and Kudelka and, and Abbas and basically all the Magnum guys that I liked yeah. and, uh, and just looked at what they did. And that is what inspired me to go to make, and, and especially Salgado. I, 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 I can't forget Salgado because it, it, it was like a feeling of, um, in those images for me, it was a feeling of the intrepid world explorer. Yep. And I just wanted to be out there and live life and, and try to get those cool images or try to, you know, and I, I didn't realize at that time it was the 93, 92, 93 that, that you know, 
if I could get away from copying them, you know, because I didn't know how to copy them. Yeah. I just knew that it was a good shot. And so I kept looking at, at books and what, what, what good photography was yeah. and tried to go out and make the best picture I could. From, I did similar and, things in, in Austin. I went to Half Price Books, and they had yeah. they had um, Abbas's Mexico book, which I still have, and they had Telex yeah. Iran by Gilles Perez. And right. I was like, "Holy cow!" There was no there was no thought of sequencing. There was no thought of book design. There was just images. Um, images. How often would you go to TJ? At first, I'd go once a week, and then uh, uh, whether or not I had it a job I would go two or three times a week and when you went you always shooting with the Leica no Nikon between right? between between 92 and 94 um I was shooting with uh, an FA a Nikon okay. FA with a 28 I want to say and then uh 94 came and uh, Bob Davis camera which was no longer in La Jolla they had a used M2 it was it was um, um, shown to me as a starter Leica. Oh, nice! So it was a beater. It was the clutch was screwed up. Whatever. It was four hundred bucks. <laughs> so who like, fixed okay, it? Okay, cool. I'm, who repaired it? Now, <laughs> funny story. <laughs> That's why I'm asking it because I know that you you, so, you you were very in, connected to the underground Leica people. Correct. It's like of course I used my degree in engineering from, from, from Berlin University to figure out that I could take a part of Leica, right? Yeah. No. <laughs> Incorrect. So Because you tried. Yeah, because the whole thing that started this this um, was Eric crazy, stupid idea well, was, was some, uh, some chucklehead put their thumbprint in, on the inside of the viewfinder oh. and you couldn't wipe it off. So I think you got to take it apart. How hard could it be, right? It's a like it's like four pieces. So of we metal. took it back to Hanson's house, right? Right. And right? you tried to take it apart. Took it apart. Now we should have we should have stopped when we took off the the top piece. Yeah. Where you could see an infinite array of just incredibly well designed gears and levers, <laughs> and, and we should have stopped there, right? Yeah. No, we didn't stop there. No, of course not. No. We kept going. We didn't. We never got to the uh, to where we wanted to go. <laughs> we we had a pile. We literally had a pile of like of M two Leica parts and a body in a Kodak um, round. Uh, it was one of those um, carousel trays boxes. Oh God, yeah, that was basically my my M 2s um, coffin for all intents and purposes. Yeah, at that point, it yeah, was, and you it was, killed it. Right. Yeah. So it sat in the coffin, in the Kodak coffin, for, I don't know, like six months. I'm like, well, we should probably fix that. I went, ba- I went back to Bob Davis, like, told him what I did. And John Dempsey, who had sold it to me, he's like, he just did a facepalm. He's like, dude, what are you yeah. thinking? Yeah. Where is it? Yeah. So he gave me Don Goldberg's number up in Wisconsin. Yeah. He's like, send it to this guy. And, and at he, the time, at the time, nobody was talking about Sherry Crowder, you know. But she was around. Yeah. I, but I was told to send it to Don. 
And these are people who work on and repair Leicas. I mean, they're Leica-specific people yeah. that are super talented, that know every little in and out of every right. single model and, and batch number and whatever. And you have to be like that because you cannot take apart a Leica M successfully unless you've done it a million times. Yeah. I'm sorry. I mean, it's, it's just, it shouldn't be done. So we sent it to Don, or I sent it to Don, Six months later, six months later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No overnight turnaround. It comes back, and it was perfect. Now, it was still a beater. He didn't fix the clutch, but it was back together. Yeah. And it was usable. And I remember shooting my first couple rolls with that, and I was, like, in downtown San Diego, and um, I was shooting people at bus stops because something that, that was something that interested me for some reason. And I had a 35 Simicron Canadian, which I sold to get a 28, which I, you know, they're both good lenses, but I, I, I really wish I had still had that 35. Anyway, I looked at the results of that um, first shoot in San Diego, and I was blown away. It was like there was, people always ask me, like, what's the big deal with Leica, you know? Why, yeah. why? It's just because they look cool. That's right. the only thing. Right. But there is a certain look that you get when you combine Tri-X and German glass, like Leitz glass. And then at the time, I think I was using... I mean, it really doesn't matter what developer you use, really, but if... if Rodenol. Right, Rodenol. I used Rodenol throughout the 90s, but the, that combination will give you a specific look yeah. that you cannot replicate. Even in digital. Look, you had, there was a picture on the wall in the dark room that was a picture of, you know, the footbridge that you walk when you, when you cross over, you go through the immigration checkpoint and yeah. then you cross over that little footbridge. Yes. And then you come down into the place where there's like the cheesy restaurants yeah, and stuff plaza. before yeah. you get to Avenida Revolucion. Right. So there was a picture that you shot of a guy that was at the corner, the intersection of two of those overhead walkways. And it was just a head. It was just that you, you were on the ground. He was one story above you. There was oh, yeah, a little yeah. head in the center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the okay. print was only probably, it was four by six on a piece of eight by 10 paper that you had tacked on the wall that had been there forever. Right, and right. so when I was at standing at the enlarger and I turned my head to the left, <laughs> that's the print that I looked at. But that yeah. was Leica Tri-X Rodinol. Right. And I remember seeing the on, amount of grain. On, on, on an overcast day. <laughs> On an overcast right. day. Okay. And the amount of grain and the sharpness of the grain yeah. in that picture, even at four by six, and I thought, God, that is the most amazing yeah. look. It's, it's like... So yeah. um, let's go back. So now you're at City College. You're starting to go to Tijuana. You are... Um, how soon after starting with the camera? I'm guessing it was immediate that you went in the darkroom. Oh, right away, because... There was you, no other option. You had to make... I mean, that's how you progress forward. You have to go... Uh, the, the the first assignment was shoot four rolls, make a contact sheet, and make a print out of those, you know, two or three prints out of that. Yeah. Now, my first <laughs> my first contact sheets were of my backyard. Yeah, it's common. Okay. Yeah. It's my backyard. And so I heard about it because at the time, I, th I think my, my, my first photo instructor was Paul Stahelik, and he was... He was a, uh, uh, I think he was considered a documentary and newspaper photographer. And uh, he looked at my, I mean, it, it, he didn't criticize why I shot there, but it was like I kept going back to the backyard yeah. to shoot because it was safe. 
right? <laughs> like, why would I go out of my backyard? But uh, it was Hanson that prodded me to go, and, and, and eventually I got, just got bored. So we went down. And there's no way to get bored in Tijuana. Right. And this, this is actually before I had the Leica. And one of the people that actually prompted me to go Leica M was Paul Stahila because he had an M6. Mm. When he pulled it out of his, out of his uh, rucksack, and he was showing us pictures that he had done in, in like a field with uh, migrant workers or whatever it was. And the size of that camera and the pictures that he got from, were, just blew me away. It's like, really? It's like, well, it's, it's, funny it's too. so small. <laughs> Right. I ran into Eli Reed the other night. Yeah. In in L.A. and Eli's a big dude, right? right? And you see the size of Eli's hands. He's bigger than me. Yeah, and you <laughs> see his size of his hands, and you think of a guy like that using right. a Leica. So it's funny when I think of you because you're big. You're like right. six four. I don't know how oh, much. Six you, two. Six two, but you're like a big burly dude. Yeah. And I'm thinking it's so funny to see somebody using this tiny, tiny camera. So, right. okay, so you and Hanson go into Tijuana. What was your first reaction to trying to photograph in Tijuana? You know, it was like uh, you, you related a story to me that, that kind of stuck with me. It was the first time you went up to a podium and you looked behind you and you everybody was looking at you. It was like, yeah. And then you then, then you had a realization like, I'm not going to care. Yeah. Because I'm never because I'm never going to see these people again. And who cares? Yeah. I'm going to shoot this and do my job and go. Yeah. It took me a while. I, I got into people's faces, and I, d- I may have done that a hundred times. I got yelled at probably twenty-five percent of the time, but I kept doing it. And then the way that I broke myself into Tijuana was I was kind of a dick. There's no other way to put it. The, you have to be a little bit of a dick to 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 get into people's faces. And the nice thing about working in a place like Tijuana and you don't know the language, is you don't know the language. You don't know that you're being cursed out in 10 different ways. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But so, like, if I had started this process in New York, I would have never probably... Yeah, you'd have been this. punched I, I out. Been yeah. eaten, I would have been yeah. eaten alive, you know? But... So you was, go and you're shooting... Yeah. And you're, you're starting to realize that you're, what you're doing is building sort of a body of photographs on Tijuana. Even though they're individual moments, you're not doing a sequence on cockfighting and then bullfighting, whatever. You're just kind of moving your right. way around the city and shooting. You're building a body of images. And then when did it dawn on you that you were building this thing? Because I don't, I don't remember if Hansen was a story guy or an individual image guy. I think he was he's, an, he was an individual he's like a single image guy. Single image guy. That was yeah. always what we were after because we were... T- we, we, we read Cartier-Bresant said you got to get it in one shot. Yeah. I mean, sequencing is fine. And, and, and well, not sequencing, but, but... Building a story. Building a story around a few images is great. But we were, we were after everything in one shot. That was the magic. And if you could get, you know, if you could get one thing, one cool thing in there, that was good. But if you could get two things in there, that was even better. And if you could get three or four things, yeah, magic elements. I mean, that's a timeless photograph, right? And how often would that happen? Um, um, for me, it happens every time I shoot. But like for oh, someone like course. yourself, yeah. 
Um, it, it happens um, to me, for me, it happened twice a year. So how many pictures in that would you say that you have in your Tijuana collection today? So I just recently... Um, because you still haven't made a blur book with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just want to remind everyone of how pathetic <laughs> that actually no, is. Because you've known that I've worked at this company for uh, 30 years, yeah. and now you're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do a book on Tijuana. Right. And I'm like, well, yeah, sure. Well, guess what? That computer in your, in your, in your kitchen, yeah. that's a big reason why I didn't do it yet. Because my, the computer I'm using now... Sucks. I can't. I, I, I can't even be on the internet. That sounds like an excuse to me. It, 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 it's I, I think totally I just heard an excuse. excuse. Okay, so eventually you're going to do this. Otherwise, I, I'll I, make you miserable. Well, look, to answer your question, twelve years of shooting has yielded about ninety-five images, which I will weed down to about fifty, and that'll be the book. That sounds really easy. Right. It's a piece it's, of cake, it's right? It's only 12 years of photography. What's oh, the problem? Sure. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I think it's, it's interesting to think about the, the time frame here because when we were going to Tijuana and we were, let's yeah. say we would walk across the, we would drive to San Isidro Park, walk across the border. You had a Leica, I had a Leica. I have mm -hmm. some hysterical pictures of you, you know, in with some Conejos down there, like, right. you know, in the, in Zona Norte. And we would shoot, and then it would be probably, you know, typically it would be days before you got to the to the film. It was it was slow. It was like this right. methodical sort of thing, right. compared to today, where it just seems like it's a foot race. Like right. every, every step of the way is like seconds later, you're promoting it and it's online or whatever. But it was a very different way of, of existing oh, with a camera. But and the interesting thing to me about you too, because you're a very talented photographer, but you also made a conscious decision to not really go, look, I want to go work full time as a photographer doing this. Like you made a decision early on that I just want to do my own thing. And a lot of people, like I look at that now and think that's the smartest decision I've ever heard anybody right. make I, because you never had to deal with anything of this, anything you right. have to deal with when you're working full time, even though you have done jobs and shoots and stuff. Right. But why? When? When did the did the idea either first appear or not appear to say I want to work full time as a photographer? You know, all throughout, and I, I go back to Eric Hansen. Um, all throughout our experience in Tijuana, we always, you know, Magnum was its pipe dream, and and it wasn't until much much later that we realized that it probably was a, exactly that a pipe dream. But we always talked about. Oh, this this could go. This could look really well in in our time. We we could have that shot in in our time. And we were talking about our own work. Yeah. But um, you know, that was that was going to be the apex of our of, of our efforts. Show our stuff to Magnum at one day, and, and they say yay or nay, and and that's it. That's it. Yeah. Maybe we'll do a book. Yeah, I had the exact same idea right yeah i mean that's why i got it's, into photography it's, it's was like, that work it's exactly the kind of conversation i had with uh, uh philip jones griffiths you know he was i asked him point blank he's like hey you know magnum what's up yeah <laughs> so hey, you know, uh, hey uh, you guys looking like, for uh well, other people? He, he said well it, it isn't like it used to be <laughs> and that said, means go away and i'm not going to mention names but he he mentioned some names that he was really kind of perturbed with like, why did they let him in? Yeah, and you know, he's been he had been he had been with the agency for since the forever fifties, yeah. right? Yeah. But he told me, it's like, yeah, when I was sixteen, I wanted to be like Henry Cartier-Bresson. Yeah, that was that that was that was the dream. 
And, they, to- and he said, I totally get it. The, but, per, the person he's referring to is a guy named Philip Jones Griffiths, who's a Magnum photographer. He's, he's unfortunately, is, is dead now. But yeah. he did a book called Vietnam Inc., which yeah. came out and basically got him booted from Vietnam by the U.S. military because they did not <laughs> look, look kindly upon it. But he, he was definitely, uh, he, his camera was a, a means of protest, of like bringing, bringing evidence to issues that he felt strongly about. And he felt really strongly about it. And so right. he's a guy that made so much work and so much oh, great sure. work over he, the years. He was, to say he was prolific is not even... And to him. see him on the street in San Diego, we had that, I had that moment of like, holy yeah. shit, that's really him. And then yeah. do I talk to him, do I not talk to him? And then going up to him and then him being so nice. And I remember he, the, just the two of us walking off into this really quiet section of downtown. Yeah. And he really was giving me good beta. I mean, he was oh, telling sure. me about the Tokyo office and the Paris office and same thing, naming names right? and saying, you know, this is, this is how you look at imagery and photography. And I yeah, was like, whole, oh, my and God. And the whole thing about turning the image upside down. He told me He that. didn't give me that one, damn it. What, what, what was that? Some secret <laughs> like, that he kept from yeah, me? Yeah, he said, I, I, don't th- I don't know who he got it from. I think he got it from Cartier Brazani. He said, you got to tr- turn your pictures upside down. And if they work upside down, they work right side up. God, I've never done that. <laughs> Holy, I'm going back through my entire archive and, uh, and set that up. Is that your phone? You can answer it if you really need to. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to turn this off. It's going to keep recording. Fine. So now let me go back a little bit because you also went to Eddie Adams' workshop. Yes. So you got into Eddie Adams, which for those of you who don't know is an event in upstate New York every year where it's an invitation only. You submit work. You're chosen. You show up, you're divided into teams. Each team goes out and covers a story in the surrounding communities. They come back, you work with real editors, real agency people, et cetera. You learn what it's like to basically right. be on assignment for a week. And then someone's chosen as a winner from each team. And then if I think I remember correctly, there's a winning team in addition. But you were chosen as a winner of your team, right? So, And Correct. the only reason I'm telling any, everyone this is because it just shows that it wasn't you and me or, or Hanson or anybody else looking and saying, hey, Eric, you're a pretty good photographer. It was like, right. the, it was well, the industry people saying, you know what, dude, you're legit. Well, what happened was I was at the 96 convention and everybody's there. All, all the photographers at the time, all the good photographers yeah. at the time were there. Well, Eddie Adams was there and he was sitting in the a lobby of the, what is the Hyatt? Yeah. Or the Marriott. And I used to carry around a, uh, a box of five by seven prints. Did everyone hear that? That's something I've been <laughs> I've been harping on my website for years about doing that exact thing. Okay, so yeah. you got a box of prints. I had a box of prints of my greatest hits, basically, and um, I I'm the kind of guy that can walk up to pretty much anybody. And it's because you're giant and people are afraid of you, <laughs> so they're like, just don't move quickly and let Whatever. him let him let the bear come and go peacefully. So I, I saw the black hat. Oh yeah. I walked up to Eddie and he's like. Hey, Eddie, I'm a photographer, obviously, because you can see all this stuff. And I showed him, you know, can I show you some prints? And he's like, absolutely. He looked at my work, and he was quiet. He was completely quiet. And then you're thinking, uh-oh. He's like, mm, he's either going to throw them at me or, or whatever. Yes. But he, he, he's, he looked at it for very uh, methodically, looked at my work, and he's like, you know, I have a workshop. <laughs> ah. So like, really? And I was like, I, I, I knew we had a workshop. So, <laughs> like, you should apply to this workshop. So and you did? I did. And you got in? And I got in. And everybody applies to this workshop. A hundred people are, are chosen. Are chosen yep. And then they go. And they're, breaking, they're broken up into ten teams. 
And Pro- then, yeah. Now, the interesting thing about Eddie M's, and this is Eddie M's '97, so it was like Eddie M's '10. Um, I don't know why or or how or what my thought process was, but I um, I volunteered for the first. It was the first year they had digital. Oh yeah, I remember. You shot digital. And they and they had those Canon It was an AP camera, it was right? An AP Yeah, it was yeah, a giant it was a huge Yeah. It was like Sputnik. 1.3 megapixel camera. That sounds huge. <laughs> I'm not a digital guy, but I think that's really high resolution. Yeah, that's really good, right? So we 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 shot digital for the whole entire workshop and the rest of the teams were shooting film. So I just shot, and, and another thing was, is it, that is clearly not going to be a full-frame sensor, <laughs> because it's no. the first digital camera yeah. on the face of the earth. No preview, no, no full-frame. It was slow, it was cantankerous, whatever. My team, member, my, my team leaders were uh, Vin Alabiso Vin Alabiso AP from AP. And, yep. and John White. Oh, wow, from at, Chicago. At Chicago uh, Sun-Times. So I started doing the assignments. We, we, we worked in Liberty and did our little thing. And I, of course, had my box of prints of, you know, little five-by-seven black-and-white prints. I showed them to Vin and John. And I think it was those prints, because they had decided, like, on the third day, that you're the guy. You're our guy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care what anybody else does. Yeah. You're the guy. And the Turnley brothers was there, and I talked to them. And uh, but it's amazing what a box of prints did. I'm telling you, man. Yeah, I mean, there was a, at most it was 25 pictures in that box. And but look, they're going to make their judgment of you in 10. Right. If you if you put 10 images in front of them that work, it shows consistency, and they're going to be like, "All right, you're you're where right. you are." But what got into my head and what stayed in my head for years, and it, it kind of misguided me, I think, was Vin on the way to some place. I was in the car with them at the workshop, and he's like, "You're going to be one of those guys that's going to be up on the stage talking about your work, like knocked away and all yeah. the other guys. You're you're going to be one of those guys." And I was like, "Cool." <laughs> so it's like, are that's, there that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so. But that that screwed with my head big time, and and then after I won, I I, I won overall the workshop. I, I was I was the best guy on the team that they chose, and then I was like, I think I won, like I was like one of two guys that won overall in the whole workshop. Wow. So, so you're a rock star now. Yeah. In, in Liberty, New York. everyone thinks you're great yeah right the second thing that screwed with my head now now the prize my prize was um uh, a one week on assignment anywhere you want to go or at least that's what i think they said yeah wow one week anywhere you want to go right wow paid by the eight uh, actually they they didn't say paid i i heard paid because i i grew up in la jolla okay (laughs) so (laughs) So um, a couple of days later, I was in New York, and I, I remember very distinctly, I was, I, I forget which street I was on, but I looked down the street, and there was the Empire State Building. 
and I was I had a like around my neck and I was in New York and I was I was people gonna, were telling you you were good right yeah. and I was I was going to meet Vin at the AP office the next day and I was like oh I fucking made it awesome <laughs> <laughs> oh no I don't have to work anymore that's yeah. awesome yeah I'm <laughs> pretty like, much done wrong <laughs> so so the next day I would I went up to AP office and this is this is the like the global AP office where you know people like Jerome Delay yeah. goes and hangs out. You know he still shoots for AP. I, I know. S- I ran into him last year in Paris. He still looks exactly the same. He is an amazing dude. Yeah. 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 So I was up at the I was at Rockefeller Center and I was you know, at the AP office. So overlooking the entire city, <laughs> and there was me and Vin, and he was. You know, the thing about Vin at the time, he's a schmooze, he, he, he's, a, he's a schmoozer. He likes to schmooze and he likes to like rub his hands like, we're going to make a deal, sort of deal, <laughs> sort, of, sort of guy. He was a great guy. I mean, get me wrong, but, you know, he's, he, he asked me, he said, do you want to meet Jerome DeLay? And he's like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yes, please. And Jerome DeLay, unfortunately, is in, Ang- I think he was Angola or somewhere. So he he took we walked out of his office and we're we're uh, now we're in the the press room, and uh, so they asked me, well, what do you want to do? What do you want to do with the one go? week? Yeah. It's like, well, um, I don't know. I got to give us some thought. And it's like, I wanted to go to Africa. I wanted to go to Africa. and the first question they asked me was, you speak French? Uh, no. <laughs> you speak Spanish? No. No. Well, that's going to be tough. <laughs> yeah. So, so like, okay, well, you get back to us. So I left the AP office. I was on cloud nine. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, this is cool. So I got it in my head. It's like, I'm going to go to Pakistan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just some, just somewhere really easy with a, with a week of, like, right. Pakistan. I, oh, they'll send me you... to Pakistan for a, for a week. You know, I actually am starting to have memories of this in real time. I'm starting. This is coming back to me. It's real funny. Keep going. Oh, God. Anyway, so I started, I, I had a friend at the time uh, who I was staying with in Brooklyn. She was, she worked for the UN. So I told her, um, Terry Joseph, she, she um, I told her I, I wanted to go to Pakistan and shoot child labor. Because it's so Just, easy to go to Pakistan and shoot child labor. Right? Oh, I know. Yeah. Show up. Who, who and, doesn't do that? Oh, they're going to love to have me there, right? Yeah. And I'm sure you're fluent as well. Yeah. I, I, I speak Pashtun. Because if and, you and, don't <laughs> speak Spanish and French, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that uh, these other languages are... Did I mention I was 25 and totally delusional, by the way? <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm guessing that the Pakistan trip never materialized. So the funny thing is, is I, I, call, I get back to San Diego and I call them... And I tell them my plans, like, I want to go to Pakistan. And you think, there was a long pause on the other side of it. Like, that's a little ambitious. <laughs> it's like, we were thinking uh, one week in your backyard, <laughs> and you pay for it. <laughs> yes. It's like, everything is on you, dude. Yeah, suddenly. Like, you... Oh, God, my balloon got deflated, and I was basically brought back to Earth, which is exactly where I should have been the whole time. But... C'est la vie. So. C'est la vie. And so fast forwarding to all these years later, 
you come in the house today and you have your backpack and I open the backpack and there's like three different Leica cameras in there. Mm. You're still shooting Leica, still mm. shooting film. Um, you and I have talked about digital a million times in the past. We both used digital in a variety of different ways, but, um, you know, of all people you have, you have kids, Yeah. you're constantly photographing your family. Some of the images you made of your kids when they were little are just like seared in my memory because they're really great photographs. Mm. Um, Thanks. and people kind of go, well, it's like family photography, but it's really good family photography. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, you, of all people, you know, kids and social media and all these things, it would be so simple for you to, like, just be blasting away all day with, with digital. But why would you put yourself through the film thing? Because, two, if I remember correctly, it's not like you're shipping off film to some high-priced lab somewhere. You're, no. like, processing and scanning and printing and stuff no. at home still. Why no. do that today? Uh, because I had a discussion with um, a good friend of mine back in San Diego, Robert Burroughs. And he, I love Robert Burroughs. <laughs> he's great. He's, yeah, he is. He's in, he's he's doing great as far as I can tell. He's 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 still God, living. God, I would house. love to go see him. I have not seen him in years and years yeah, and years. He's a great guy. I love I love that guy. He told me to shoot film. He said, if you're taking pictures of your kids, shoot film. And here's why: you have you now all those people out there that say you can back up to the cloud. I hear you, but he told me at the time, and this was like ten years ago. You'll have a hard copy. Yeah, the if, eggs. If and and I have lost twenty thousand images digitally, in in the stroke of a key or that sounds mouse. that sounds relatively bad. Yeah, it's it's not good. It's impressive though, on one hand, because it is a lot of images to lose. Right. Oh, I, I had selected everything, and then oh. I didn't. Whatever. He said to shoot film, and. Um, so I had been shooting at the time. I had been shooting film for our tracks for like twenty years at that point, at that point. So I just kept going, and um, you know, I could be better, better organized. I'll yeah, you, you could be. I'll, 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 I'll second. Give you that. I'll second I'll that. Give you that. But they're there. I've seen your. I've seen your current setup. <laughs> they're there. I'm somewhere. still. In, I'm in therapy. Still trying to forget <laughs> so. it. But uh, yeah, yeah, you could you could be more organized. But the interesting thing about it is th- there is something relieving about not obsessing about it yeah like you obsess about making the photos right if you wait a month before you process the film or six months or whatever and you don't print everything or whatever but it's just this idea of this continual stream of random shooting and you know um if you let the film marinate in time your brain will mature and whether it's now i'm not suggesting you leave your film yeah. to be not processed for years but you know i for the past two or three years I'll, I'll i'll have like 70 or 80 rolls at the end of the year that i didn't get to because i'm a procrastinator yeah and, big uh, shock but but um, did you say seven zero or eight zero 70 last, or 80 uh, rolls seven, of film it was like 72 rolls God, that's that was yeah, an yeah, admission yeah. of guilt. You should have seen his body language. Okay. It was just collapse. <laughs> oh, near collapse. <laughs> I replaced my refrigerator. One of the pieces I, I I kept from that refrigerator was a big tray. Oh. All the all the film that I shoot in the year in my office goes in the tray. You know what that's called? <laughs> it's called a Winogrand. When he had that, exactly that right, file right? cabinet stuffed with that. bags he of had, like, unprocessed bags and bags and bags. Yeah. Okay, so you're like in the Winogrand tradition, which is actually really interesting to me because one of the big difference between us photographically 
is from day one, I always thought about sequence. I always thought yeah. picture story, picture story, picture story. And I was now, jealous of that. Now, way. and I was jealous of the op- of doing the single images. And now that's what I'm trying to do is single images. And I've right. never done it before. Right. So I walk around and I see a single image. And my first thought is, okay, what are the other two, three, four, 10, 50 that I have right. to make to make this body work? Right. I don't want to do that. And that's why we're looking, my new essay magazine is here between us. And I'm trying to do a... There's going to be a reoccurring uh, version of the magazine that's all about California, and it's going to be random California images. This looks great, man. It better. It's mine. It's br- if it's mine, it's brilliant. It's genius. You of know. Of course it is. So yeah, I'm expecting you and every one of your family members to buy one of those once they come out. Oh, I will. Yeah. I mean, I got to pay the mortgage. Johnny on the spot. <laughs> so, are you still buying books, collecting books, photo books? Uh, is my wife listening? <laughs> no, no, uh, not this section. I'll edit it out. That's cool. Um, The last book I bought was um, um, it was Mark Cohen, I think. You also did you buy Magnum contact sheets? I did. Yeah, I have that book too. That's scary. That's a book to me that I I, it talks at me across the room. Like like be be prepared when you open these. Interesting, you should say that because that's exactly the word I would describe myself when I when I look at it from across the room. It it sits right across my bed. I was like, one day I'm going to go in there and look at it. And I've looked at it twice now, but it's like, it's a mountain of knowledge. Yeah, and, it's and, scary how good that is. You know, Magnum Contact Sheets, um, getting back to Cartier-Prezan, you know, he would get mad. I, I, well, I was told he would get mad if you showed him individual images, pictures of what you think was good. He didn't, he didn't want to see that. He wanted to see contact sheets. He wanted to see how you thought. Yeah, that's a little scary. I mean, contact sheets yeah. are obviously, um, I don't know if you saw this a couple of years ago, but there was a big Robert Frank show, both in New York and then the Tate London had it as well. And I was lucked out because I was in New York and then I had to go to London. So I saw it in both places. And both, mm-hmm. of, both of the exhibitions had his contact sheets enlarged right. significantly. So, you know, you look at the, Amer- the book, The Americans, which is a lot of people consider sort of the definitive documentary book in the, of the United States ever. It's, I, it, I think it is. And then you look at the contact sheets and you go, two things. One, he didn't use a meter. So right. his exposures are all over the place. Well, yeah. But two, there was so much great work on the contact sheets yeah. outside of what ended up in the book that yeah. you just go, oh my God. And they, he shot, it's either, someone told me it's either 27,000 or 72,000 images. Right. And there's 52 in the book, or and 53. Then, and, th- and then you think about the time when, he's, when, he, when he was talking about his process. And he, like, he, originally, he's a painter. He started, his, the way he started seeing the world was through painting. And that is a fantastic way to start. And yeah. I, still, I still collect art books and look at art. And, you know, like Cezanne and, and Picasso and Matisse. I love Matisse. I was in L.A. on Saturday at a cinematographer meeting, and I'm not a cinematographer, obviously, but uh, my wife was there for work, and so there was a, a woman who was a really famous cinematographer, and she was standing there, and Amy, my wife, was right next to her, and these two young girls come up to the, to the director, the cinematographer, and they say, how do we get started? Right. And Amy said that the first thing she said was, you study the master painters. Right. Study the painters, because you have to understand the light. And that they're going to teach you everything exactly. you need to know about light, and then you can start making films. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it's, what are, what are the components of photographs to you? I have three components of a great photograph that I mm-hmm. think, and I have them in ranking order. What are the things that you look at? Mine are light and timing and composition. Mm-hmm. Those are the three that I, I rank in order. If the light's not right, 
It's only unless it is a mind blowing piece of content. Right. It's not going to be good enough. Light. Then the timing of getting a real moment that's never going to happen again. And right. third is the composition of knowing you're comfortable with your equipment and you've done it long enough to know who you are, what you're looking for. Right. You can you can show a consistency in the composition. Could right. be simple. Could be complex. You know, it's um, it's light, of course. And the first time we interviewed that that audio got screwed up. Yeah. It wasn't. And I gave it some more thought. It is light. It is completely light. And then uh, I look at, I need a good background. You have to have a good background, whatever that's going to be in. And then timing, and then that's it. And your comp- composition, how would you describe your, your composition as a photographer? It's evolved. Um, when I first started out, it was non-existent. And then um, I listened to Hanson more and more, and he, I, I, I love his work. Yeah, he's a good I've photographer. I've always loved his work. And he would always tell me shapes. You go look, look for the shapes, triangles, circles, you know, tr- whatever it is. If you have a good, because that, that way it will, it will read well. And you could have a whole huge triangle in, in or whatever it is, as long as it reads well. As long as you can turn it upside down <laughs> and it looks good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that that idiom for, sure, you know, to double check your work is is a good one. And it, 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 compositionally, you know, it, 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 hold, it holds water. So, so one, one word that's popped in my head over the past few years thinking about photography and thinking about, like, what I look for is the idea of spacing. So what I realized yeah. is if I go, I'm not a street person in the middle of the city. I have a really hard time working. But if right. I go to like El Mirage Dry Lake and the land speed record people are shooting right. and it's things are, there's a certain distance to things, whether yeah. you're in a rural community or you're in the desert or whatever, I have to have people. I'm not a landscape guy, yeah. but I look for a certain spacing. And yeah. if I walk around Manhattan and I'm trying to shoot pictures on the street, I can't do it. I'm horrible. I don't like the spacing. I feel trapped. Right. You give me that one little middle distance where you, you can go from using a 35 millimeter to a 50 mm-hmm. and I am in like heaven. I'll be there all day long. Right. I have a, my question is when I'm out in the world, even in the past few years, I really haven't carried a camera much. I haven't really made many, many photographs. Mm. But I'm still traveling all the time. I'm out in the world. And I will suddenly realize that I'm in a situation where the spacing is what my old brain would have been all over. And my body gets like hyper. Right. And I'm looking around because I'm like, this is it. This is my spacing. This is where I make pictures. Do you feel that? And what's your spacing? Absolutely. There are certain things that happen in the world that trigger that feeling. And it took years to get to that, I guess, programming in, my, in the way my brain is wired. There are certain things that happen on the street or wherever that, like, oh, get interested, take notice, yeah, and then get ready. Um, certain, the way certain people look, um, it, it, it's, it's hard to describe, but I just know it. I just know. It, basically, it's ingredients. And all of right. a sudden, you, if you see a, sing, a lone ingredient, it right. may pique your interest for a second, but you just casually and you may not think about it. But when right. you start if to you see two, it. three ingredients, exactly. suddenly it's like a storm chaser. You're like, right. there's a cold front. Okay, check. There's right. a warm front. Check. 
um, they're going to hit. Okay, now my interest is peaked. And right. that's kind of where I'm in the same thing. I find the spacing. Typically, it's light and spacing. Right. Where all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm looking for any kind of recording device I have on my body to like right. start finding something exactly. to shoot. Exactly, because you basically, you're basically putting together a soup. So you need your celery, your carrots, your onions, your garlic, and your water. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. That's it. And when you get carrots and celery, you start to get excited. <laughs> and, exactly. You know, you're like, I might have a soup here. It's like... That's going to be a nice bowl of soup. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, it's funny that Eric Hansen's name keeps coming up because it, thinking back on this now, I, I hadn't thought about this in a long time, but um, I guess I met him in San Diego same time as you. And then I don't, we went, I think I went to Mexico with him once or twice. I think he had a VW van that we drove mm-hmm. over to Mexico. But when I yeah. took a job at Kodak in 99, yeah, and no, 97, and then in no, end of 99, I, was, <laughs> I, was, I said, I got to go back. No, no, no. It was 97. I took a job with Kodak, and I had a Canon EOS 1V, yeah. or oh, no, nice. just an EOS 1, nice. and a 70 to 200. Yeah. But I had sold off all of my Leica stuff. Oh, my And God. when I took the job at Kodak, Kodak said, you can no longer do assignments because you'll be competing with your customers, and that's a conflict of interest. They made right. me sign this clause. Right. And I said, okay. So I was had all this Canon gear, and I'm like, I don't want this Canon gear anymore. I, want, I actually just want a Leica in a 35. Right. So I, somehow I told Hanson this, and Hanson's like, I want that Canon in that 70 to 200. And he drove oh up in a God. driving rainstorm from San Diego to Laguna, and we traded. And I remember trying to talk him out of it. I said, this is actually a terrible deal for you. You're going to regret this. Don't oh do it. God. And I traded him an M6. And a 35 f2 for a Canon one, EOS, a Canon EOS one, and a 70 to 200, and it was the black you 70 to 200, not the white one. Gotta so. be kidding me! No, and he did it, and I felt bad for quite a while, but I used that camera for years and years and yeah. years. Yeah. Well, guess where that that EOS one is now? No way. Yeah. Where? It's in my filing cabinet. No way. <laughs> That's he, hysterical. He came up to me. He's like. I don't really use this anymore. It's yours. Oh my God! You have, have my old. I EOS. have your EOS one. That I would, I with was the seventy to two hundred. No, it, I I don't have it. I just have a twenty-eight and a fifty. Oh my God! That but, is fantastic. Yeah, it's it still it, works. It has Hanson on the back of it, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's that there. is incredible. But getting back to your little point about uh, you have to have people in the picture. Yeah. Um, back in two thousand six. Um, Paul Giroux, actually, yep. um, prompted me to show my work to Magnum. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember that. I, I know this story. This is a good story. you got to do it. It's like, okay, I'm family with kids, and I totally have this thing yep. going. Okay, I did it. I got my 80, 80 images together. Yeah. Sent it in. And, uh, you know, the... At least 10 years ago, when you submit to Magnum, the best thing to do is to forget about it. Yeah. But good because advice. You'll yeah. have a heart attack Yeah, if you think about it all the time. Well, um, a month later, I got an email. Uh, uh-oh. <laughs> and then I had a heart attack. <laughs> yeah, so, because? Because it was from the Magnum Selection Committee. And they said, basically, all the submissions that were, and I didn't say, but of all the submissions that were submitted, you were one of four finalists. Wow. <laughs> to be considered to go to, to uh, nominee status. Holy crap. And I just freaked. Yeah, that's amazing. So 
it was and it was signed. Uh, it now, I have a buddy, uh, S Steve Ballman, who um, who uh, is in San Francisco. We actually have actually met on you know we're on Facebook, but he uh, has a s similar experience. Well, he has he has a letter from Eugene Richards from Magnum. Wow, from back in '86. I wish I had a letter, a handwritten letter. Yeah, I had an email. I had an email from Constantine Manos. So I called up the number on the email and talked to Constantine Manos. He gave me all of his contact information. And I called him at home, and we had about a three-hour chat. And uh, he went over every single one of my images. Wow. And broke it down and really started asking me lots of questions about why, why I wanted to be in Magnum. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, it's smart. Yeah. And... Um, you know, at the at the end of the interview, um, he, he he said some he he, he said um, the reason why you were selected is because about sixteen members really found your work really cool. <laughs> it's like who are those members? <laughs> it's like uh, please, yeah. Can, you, can I have a list? Can I have a list, please? I I tried. I, I scoured the internet to figure out who was at that meeting couldn't find it whatever it's it's history but he basically said uh there was a group he, he asked me he wanted to know what i was working on now and i was like well i'm uh i'm working on a project in downtown las vegas and the yeah. images that he did see uh it was like there was no people in them yeah he's like you need to stick with people <laughs> The getting yeah. back to here it has to have a people and yeah. pictures like it's very important which you know unfortunately in the modern age it complicates things oh sure you know we were talking about this earlier it's like there's people Ever when people look at photographers working on the street today there's a look of there's a, a feeling of suspicion Absolutely. of like you're taking advantage of me or you're suddenly there's a lot of people that think that documentary photographers are getting quote quote getting rich off of my image I, right. i've heard that a thousand times and, and when you say to people not only am I not making money on this, I'm actually losing money. And right. I've told that to like border patrol agents and ATF people or whatever. And everyone is the same. They, they just say that, that I don't believe you because the, why would you be doing it if you weren't making any money? Right. When you say, look, it's because this is sort of my obsession of doing this. They're like, no, that doesn't compute. And no. they just and get away from me. That feeling had, has, as, as far as I'm concerned, that feeling started after 9-11 and all the paranoia. But getting back to Constantine Manos, he, he basically said, look, um, Magnum is going to totally change your life. Do you want your life to be completely uprooted yeah. <laughs> and changed? And I told him, no. <laughs> yeah, because you were I, married and had kids. I and... have married, have kids now, now, now you know. Um, uh, uh, they, look. Um, Anderson, uh, Chris Chris Anderson? Chris Anderson. He has kids. Yeah. He, he does yeah, it. Yeah. There are a number of magnet photographers that do yep, that. Yeah. But look, your kids weren't that old, so it's not like you were that attached to them. Right. Right? You could you it wasn't too late to get rid of them. But just saying. It it, it brought me back to It's Magnum we're talking about here. Right. But it also brought me back to the plane ride back from New York. And I thought to myself, okay, I can either go one or two ways here. I can pursue this AP thing, it'll probably do something for me. But, you know, looking, and, and, and then I thought to myself, 
I knew a handful of guys that were journalists and were working as a photographer and, and, and wanted to be globetrotters and yeah. whatever. And uh, they, a, f- a couple of them had committed suicide. And it was, it was, it was serious yeah. shit, you know? And I didn't, I said, I, I want a family. I want to I settle down and have a family and, you know, yeah. not probably do that as much. But I guess the closest thing I would say is that, you know, for other people out there in that same dilemma is you have a guy, and I don't know him personally. I've met him before, but I don't know him at all. Larry Tal, yeah. who's, you know, basically a farmer, lives sure. on a farm, very family, you know, big, lots of family stuff, but yeah. he's still able to get out and do stuff. But I'm sure mm-hmm. it's, you know, he's probably gone a lot and it's yeah. a hard, it's definitely a hard balance, especially if you have young, young kids. Sure. Yeah. And you don't make much money. I don't care. Well, I was going to bring something up because if you're talking about like late 90s time frame, 97 was the first year where I saw the first real digital cameras arrive that were capable of delivering really good files for not just journalism, but for catalogs and fashion and advertising and stuff. Not saying compared to today they were good, but back in the day you were like, okay, this is going to work. Right. And 97 was also the first time that I saw a digital camera completely implode a working relationship for a photographer with a client. Just literally within seconds, a client just going, this is bullshit. Like, I saw what you did. It's too easy. Why am I paying you? Right. Um, You know, and I was like, holy cow. I never saw it My cousin can do this. Yeah. And the client (laughs) was like, look, you know, why am I paying you? And do this 10 times more for less money. And that was 97. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh. So the industry at that time obviously was probably as healthy as it's been in a long time. We obviously have all these other alternatives now because of the internet and digital technology. But it was the end of an an era. And it was the end of sort of the idea of being able to to work in the way that you and I got into photography right. to work, which was that sort of slower, methodical, film-based, storytelling kind Absolutely. of thing that really started to disappear. Right. And, you know, industry aside, I, uh, I, wa- I want to share a story uh, that happened to me a couple of days ago. I was in San Diego, and I, was, I walked into George's camera and just wanted to see what was, you know, was new. And I had my M3 around my neck, and, uh, you know, the older guys, you know, gave me a, you know, looked at it and was like, oh, that's cool. But what surprised me the most and what keeps unhappening to me in public is the millennials. Yeah. The millennial. The, Are the, digging there, the Lycus. There were two girls. Yeah. Millennial, I don't know, probably 20 something. They were enthralled. They loved that old gear. It's like, is that a Leica? <laughs> Like, and you're like, yeah, you know, I'm a former almost <laughs> Magnum nominee. Yeah. Right. Funny, like, funny you should ask, ladies. Now, yeah. By the way, I never tell that story because <laughs> I was almost a Magnum nominee. Who cares? No, you can't tell that. You, you can't, can't tell that no, story. No, no, no. You can't. No. You can only say it to, like, one person. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, you say it to the people that understand what exactly. it means. And then, I mean, you know, it exactly. is. But so, what your point is very valid because thank, thankfully, films up five percent year on year. And year. Kodak just mentioned they're bringing back Ektachrome. You know, I, I'm just if anyone, there's no one at Kodak that's going to listen to anything on my website. I don't think. But if, <laughs> but if there is, I just want to say one thing. I'm ex- interested. Kodachrome. <laughs> I'm interested in the fact that you brought back Ektachrome. I'm just puzzled by the whole thing because it it's not a lack of film options that right. keep people from using film. What keeps them from using it is affordable scanning 
right. and processing. Right. So you have to, Kodak needs to do this, which is tricky. You have to simultaneously support the existing labs, the photo impacts of the world, the Richards in LA. Mm-hmm. But there has to be a way of getting, whether it's subsidized or something, processing and scanning. Because if you're paying 27 28 $29, $30 a roll for processing and scanning, it's prohibitive for a lot of people that want to shoot film. Right. So instead of having a new Ektachrome film, if I was going to bring something back, I'd bring back, you know, T-Max 3200 or some, or EPP or some other Ektachrome film, but, or some of the old color negative films, but I would figure out a way for Kodak to create their own super processing lab. Right. And Ilford has one, but it's crazy expensive too. It's like so cost prohibitive that most people just go, look, I want to shoot film. I'm never going to do it. Right. But thankfully, the millennials have really dug in on film, they really have. whether it's and Type 55 or it's Impossible or whatever, or, or well, really going back and what, shooting analog. What these girls were telling me was like, these are so hard to find. And it's like, uh, I had no idea. I just bought it. <laughs> but look, you know, it's on, like, on Saturday, I was talking yeah. to a cinematographer and he, I found out what Saturday blew me away because I'm in this huge gathering of, of film cinematographers and they're all carrying still cameras and they're yeah. all, there were Leicas, there were, I'm a Mia 7, there were all these things. Nice. And these guys were talking about like the importance of, you know, stills transitioning to, to uh, filmmaking and stuff like that. Mm. But it's, um, a lot of the people that had the film cameras were the youngest people there. And they right. were just dug in on analog because they're like, look, I grew up with digital. It's not that interesting to me. I'm really interested in the analog. That's right. But you, they have to create a lab that I can efficiently yeah. ship to right get the 50 meg scans for 35 right. the 70 meg scans for 120 right. and the thing is you don't want to destroy the lab industry in the process so right. there has to be a way for like maybe kodak to do a subsidy program with specific labs sure. where people are sending stuff in i don't know yeah. that's the thing that i'm getting ready to ship film off to la and it's you know i'm gonna pay you pay a lot of money it adds up really quickly yeah. At the same time, obviously, you don't need a computer. You don't need anything really to, um, you know, so it's cheaper in some ways. I pay a lot less. I get all my, I get all my chemistry out of um, um, Sprint Systems. Yeah, I love Sprint Systems, too. And uh, I process in my bathroom. <laughs> I can see that. But, uh, <laughs> Giant guy in a tiny room. But I love Sprint, Sprint Systems. So they, you, do, uh, do you do 10 rolls at a time? I do eight. Eight rolls. Eight okay. rolls at 35, and then I'll do... I can't remember if it was two or four at a time or two and a quarter. So you but have a stainless eight-reel tank? I use the stainless eight-reel tank for the two and a quarter because okay. I don't know how to roll a two and a quarter onto the Patterson reels. It's so hard. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Now, when I, was, when I was back in school, you know, you used steel reels. Yeah. And the Patterson stuff was like, oh, only... Yeah, sissies use those. Right. So yeah. I stayed away. I was like, but I use the Patterson reels, and they're amazing. Oh, I know. They're, they're just it's so a, easy. They're, Patterson reels are plastic reels and plastic tank, right? In a really smart system, and right. they're really easy to load. It's it's just fantastic. Right. I I did too. And, and in fact, I've been debating about starting to process again and buying yeah. a scanner. And now I'm trying to. And then you dive into the scanner rabbit hole, right. and you're like, great. Now what? Right. I mean. I got into a lot of trouble with my wife after I bought. I I basically spent money that basically wasn't mine. Is that a problem? <laughs> That's a little problem. <laughs> <laughs> so I bought an M4. I bought a I bought a Nikon uh, Cool Scan 9000 ED. That's a nice scanner still. I had one. Yeah. And it's I still use it to this day, and I'll continue using it even with this new computer. I'm just. I'm just going to use this computer for blurb because I can get it on the internet. Yes. 
That's so. the whole reason to do this interview. It took us an hour and six <laughs> minutes to get to you to mention, mention blurb. blurb. <laughs> <laughs> okay, finally we can stop talking. No, right. that's um, yeah. <clears throat> and the so. thing is, for me, it's like I go back and forth weighing sending film off and paying for it super expensive but i don't have to do any scanning i don't have to process it's like i can do my other work so right. it's a trade-off you know i don't like paying that much money but it is what it is sure so what is do you have anything on your horizon in terms of photography anything specific or are you just gonna keep doing the, the random stuff and enjoying just piecing stuff together here and there you know i have such a collection of of negatives that I need to go through and organize and turn into books. When is that going to start? Now. It's going to start when I get back to Vegas. I was like, going to say. Like you're, this week. This is I my house, to, not I your house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I swear, well, <laughs> yeah. I swear to God, I'm going to start it this week. All right. I'm going to hold you to that. And I have uh, a graphic designer who said she'd help me in Florida, so we'll see. God, poor, poor woman. It's good she's in Florida. <laughs> she's a nice lady. <laughs> you know, Florida has more more invasive species than anywhere in the world. Just a, there's a trivia I fact for you. I just returned from Florida. God, it's awful. I love so, I'm sorry, people who live in Florida, but I'm... I'm Look, just... I don't know about the bulk of Florida. Uh, no idea. But I love Miami. I love Miami. I've too. never been to Miami. Oh I shouldn't. God. I shouldn't say that Florida's horrible. I I, I was. On, I went on a cruise and. Oh, cruise! No, stop! It just you know. It was my first cruise. <sighs> I just hope you were blottoed the whole time. That's the only way to be on the cruise. Just just on the border of being so blotto, you might fall over. That's, That's a long drop. <laughs> okay, on a on a on a. Uh, now that we're bringing this up, and this interview's so long anyway. I was on a cruise ship last year. Um, I'd never been on a cruise ship and I was teaching on the cruise ship. Right. So I wasn't on a cruise myself, but you know, teaching. So uh, apparently I was on, I was on the largest cruise ship in the world and there were like 5,500 people. And right. I think it was like 15 or 16 floors. Oh my God. So when you're outside and you're on the deck at 15th floor or 16th, it's so windy that the the top floor right. was closed off pretty much all the time. Right. So you're up there and you're looking down and you're like, that seems like a long way. Like the water's basically concrete at that point. So Apparently, the week before our cruise, a guy in the middle of the night, don't know if he was drinking or not, I'm guessing, but don't know. Apparently, he goes up to the top, falls over, and it's like 11 o'clock at night. Oh, and he's 16 floors down, he just decks on the water. Boom. But he's totally fine. Right. So the ship takes off. No one sees him fall over. So he's out there by himself. Tread one of my biggest fears. He's yeah. treading water. And he treads water all night long. And at like five o'clock in the morning comes the next cruise ship coming on the same path. And someone looks down and goes, hey, there's a dude in the water. And they pull him out. And he gets on the next boat. Oh, my God. And I'm like, got anything to drink? <laughs> Is there a buffet on this boat? Uh, I, was, wow. I was really impressed because I thought if I decked 16 floors down, and I'm so skinny, oh, man, God. I would be dead in that yeah, water. In like, like two hours, I'd be like, that's it. I give up. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go I, Davy Jones. Yeah, I looked over the edge, and, the, the, and, and, and I went out there at night. It's like, if anybody pushes me over, nobody's going to see it. No, and just to think of decking at night because you don't know yeah. where the water is. Yeah. And, like, you're spinning, and you're flying upside right. down, and you drill. And, you, and you know, you potentially maybe you go 20 feet deep once right. you hit the water. Uh, yeah, it was kind of terrifying. But the fact that he survived was miraculous, and I was, I was sure. like, I want to meet that guy. Sure, sure. Maybe more importantly, I want to party with that guy. God. So anyway, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. We, we've been talking all photography here pretty much all day. 
and books and blurb and all that kind of stuff. But um, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Appreciate it, bro. And we will um, we'll do chapter two at some point in the future. We'll do. See ya. See ya.